You're listening to the So What Podcast. It's frustrating for me as a scholar to hear um, other scholars even treat the Gnostic Gospels as though they're somehow as reliable or even more reliable than the canonical Gospels, because at the end of the day, those Gnostic Gospels are misogynist and they're anti-Semitic, and you know they're just not—they're not the Jesus that that we see in the canonical Gospels in the letters of the New Testament in the early church. And welcome to another episode of the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. Well, today we are excited to have back with us on the show, Dr. Jim Papandrea, to discuss the early heresy of Gnosticism. Papandrea is currently Associate Professor of Church History at the Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary and is author of many books to include The Earliest Christologies, Five Images of Christ in the Post-Apostolic Age, the content of which deals with the very topic we will be discussing in today's episodes. You can check out this and all of Dr. Papandrea's other works by visiting www.drjimsbooks.com, which will take you to his author page. Well, before we head over, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. It really helps us a lot. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for so what podcast? Well, let's head over to our discussion with Dr. Papandrea. Dr. Papandrea, we are so excited to have you back on So What Podcast. Thank you for rejoining us. Oh, my pleasure. It uh, was a lot of fun the last time, so I'm glad to be back. Well, this time we want to talk about a very well-known heresy in the early church, but not something that perhaps Christians may be aware of today, that of Gnosticism. It was very influential early on, and it kind of faded out as Christians combated this early heresy. So we've invited you on to walk us through what is Gnosticism, and do we see remnants of Gnosticism in the church today? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the last time I was on the show, we talked about adoptionism, and uh, and Gnosticism is sort of the opposite extreme from that. Uh, if, if, if your listeners remember, adoptionism is that heresy that denied or diminished the divinity of Christ um, while accepting his humanity. Gnosticism is the other is is the other extreme in the sense of uh, it's the heresy that that denied or diminished the humanity of Christ while accepting his divinity. And uh, you may think that sounds kind of strange, but you have to remember that uh, those Gnostics in the early church were former pagans. They were um, people coming from the Greco-Roman religions who 
had converted to Christianity but didn't really give up all of their paganism. And so they were perfectly happy to believe in the divinity of Jesus as a god, one of many gods, even sort of the offspring of a pair of gods who came before him. Um, but they had, uh, they had this kind of extreme dualism that led them to believe that everything in the material world is inherently evil. And so if they believed that Jesus Christ was divine, they did not believe that he could really ever come into contact with humanity in the material world. Um, and so uh, they, they denied his humanity and believed that he was a, uh, a god, but uh, in terms of his appearance on earth, that his appearance was an illusion or he was in disguise as a human, but, but not really human. And, um, and so we see this in the early church in taking different forms. And, um, and we see it in like writers like uh, Irenaeus and others who actually wrote long documents explaining all the beliefs of the Gnostics and laying out all the different sort of Gnostic schools of thought um, which has led scholars recently to say that Gnosticism was never really one thing, uh, but it was kind of a, uh, it's an umbrella term for a lot of different uh, belief systems, a lot of different schools of thought that kind of come from the same uh, angle, but really had a lot of differences between them. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've done in my book, The Earliest Christologies, is that I've sort of, I've kind of sorted all that out. So that when you when you strip away uh, a lot of the uh, cosmologies of the Gnostic beliefs, all the layers of heavens and angels and all their names and everything, when you get down to what they believed about Christ specifically, their Christology, uh, what you find out is that there's really two kinds of Gnosticism in the early church. Uh, there's one kind that uh, believed that Jesus uh, was completely a fan and an illusion and uh, had no physicality to himself at all, no physical, tangible body at all. And then there was another kind that believed that he had some sort of a tangible body, but at the end of the day was was still not really human. Uh, he was just sort of a god in disguise as a human. And um, so both of them kind of end up at that same place where they deny the humanity of Jesus uh, and uh, talk about him as an, the appearance of a god on the earth, um, but not really one of us in that sense of his humanity. So you mentioned there is a Greek background to this thought. Can you walk us through why they would be so adverse to flesh in favoring the spirit? Well, you know, the why question is probably uh, a difficult one to answer, but it goes, it all goes back to Plato. And, um, you know, a lot of people are aware of Plato's uh, kind of dualism between uh, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, in which uh, he said that, you know, the, the spiritual realm is actually more real than the material realm, so that whatever exists in the, in the physical world is kind of just a, a shadow of the, of the true forms that exist in the spiritual realm. And, um, and in fact, some of that finds its way into Christianity in the sense that, you know, we believe that the spiritual realm is on a higher plane, and we believe that uh, sometimes spiritual things are more important than physical things. But some people took that dualism to an extreme, and um, and and to say that not only did they believe that the spiritual realm was more real than the physical realm, but also to give it kind of a an ethical 
um, value judgment so that the spiritual realm was all good to them and the material realm was all bad, was all evil. And so um, so that led them to their Christology. Uh, as far as why or how they made that jump from Plato to this extreme dualism uh, is unclear. Now, all this that you've been bringing up, where, where do we learn about the Gnostics and, and what they believe? Are there any primary source materials that they produced that uh, that people might look at today? Uh, there are. And um, in fact, I mentioned Irenaeus. Uh, his, uh, Ir- Irenaeus was one of the church fathers writing in, uh, towards the end of the second century in about the 180s. And uh, he has a long document called Against All Heresies. And uh, he, he lays out the beliefs of the different Gnostic schools of thought. And it was once believed that um, it was fashionable to say that, well, you know, Irenaeus is just, you know, making things up. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He, um, you know, he's just, uh, you know, criticizing, but without really knowing what they believed uh, until the discovery of the actual Gnostic documents in uh, the Nag Hammadi collection and some other places. And we came to realize that actually Irenaeus does know what he's talking about. He is, uh, as far as we can tell, describing the Gnostic schools of thought and their belief pretty faithfully. There are other church fathers that describe uh, the Gnostic beliefs, but most of them are getting most of their information from Irenaeus. Um, We also have a character named Marcion, who was important in the early church, who turned out to be a heretic. He isn't exactly a Gnostic. He's uh, what we would call docetic, so he has that extreme dualism. He just never takes it as far as the Gnostics in terms of the uh, the secret knowledge and some of the you know uh, the other things that are typical of Gnosticism. But we have uh, we have writers who talk about him and what he taught as well. And so we kind of know the names of some of these uh, early Gnostic leaders who were kind of you know uh, leading some of the Christians away from what the mainstream church was teaching uh, down this path of of extreme dualism. And um, and kind of a pagan paganized version of Christianity. Typically, around Easter, we'll see on TV uh, some shows outlining the, you know, books of the Bible that were kept out, and, and yeah. talking about Jesus's resurrection and all these sorts of things. So what should our approach be to those types of uh, programs? Right. Well, you know, always remember that uh, the motivation for making those programs is to make money, not to tell the truth. <laughs> and uh, anytime you hear about the so-called lost books of the Bible or conspiracy theories about how the church suppressed certain books of the Bible, you should always raise an eyebrow. I mean, with the Gnostic documents in particular, and, and some people are familiar with some of these, you may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas, or there's a Gospel of Judas, there's a Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Um, with these documents, uh, the, these are not lost books of the Bible. They were never considered for inclusion in the Bible. They weren't even written yet when the New Testament documents were written. They were written, you know, 100, 200, 300 years later when the Gnostics were actually separating out from the mainstream church. So Gnosticism as a heresy starts out within the church, but eventually moves, moves out and becomes something separate. And it's at that point that these Gnostic Gospels were written to be kind of the anti-church Gospels. So in the Gnostic Gospels, you will read, uh, you will read where they, they imply that you shouldn't listen to whatever is being taught by those, those folks that learn their stuff from Peter, James, and John. Yeah. You should only listen to the, the stuff we're teaching because we got our stuff from Thomas or from Judas or whatever. And, uh, 
And so there's a real sort of competition between the, the Gnostic Gospels and what was being taught in the mainstream church. And so, um, yeah, so they're not the, you know, the lost books of the Bible. They were never supposed to be in the Bible. Uh, they were written, you know, specifically to oppose the church, actually. Thank you, Jim. That's a very interesting background. And that prompts me to ask, if we're thinking of Gnosticism as a soup or a stew, say, wanting to plot some of these things along uh, a chronology or a timeline, what was simmering in the pot? How much does it predate some of these religious beliefs, Christianity? What was simmering in the pot before the incarnation and the ministry of Christ in the early church? Or did it arise in the you know first few centuries after Jesus's resurrection and ascension and the the launching of the church? Or were there older Hebrew beliefs with angelology and things like that, that then Jesus gets, he's a late ingredient that gets added to the stew? You know, you've mentioned Plato, which obviously predates Christ, but I'm curious what Gnostic practice was like if there was such a thing before the time of Christ, and then how that was altered with, as it began to mingle with the early church. Yeah, that's a great question, because at one time uh, it was it was assumed among scholars that uh, somehow Gnosticism existed first before the church and then the church came along. But, you know, the more we look into it, the more we find that there's no evidence for that, that that Gnosticism as we know it or the, the many Gnosticisms or, or various schools of Gnostic thought uh, did not really exist before the coming of the church. Um Basically, you know, your word stew, you're calling it a stew. Other people might call it a salad bar. But the theological term for that is syncretism. And uh, Gnosticism is a syncretism or an amalgam or or a mixing of elements from different religions. So the different religions uh, from which Gnosticism is made were out there. Um, but it seems that it was only after Christianity came along that uh, that you know they started to mix in in this particular way. Um, and so you know we have Greco-Roman philosophy, we have Judaism and certain branches of uh, Jewish mysticism. We have early Christianity. We have Zoroastrianism, which uh, if you think about the Magi, they were Zoroastrian priests. Um, all of these things kind of get thrown together within the early church, uh, within a sort of fringe movement in the early church, um, and, uh, and, and become sort of, you know, mixed into this stew, as you're calling it, uh, that, is, that is Gnosticism. And so um, things like the worship of angels, things like the, uh, the, uh, the zodiac and belief in astrology, Things like the belief in the power of names. And so um, in Gnostic teaching, you have this idea that there are layers of heaven. And when you die, you hope to ascend through the layers of heaven. But the only way you can do that is if you know the names of the angels who guard each layer. And you can use the, their names as kind of passwords to get through the gatekeepers. And, you know, all these kinds of ideas. We can see the seeds of Gnosticism, I would say it's not true Gnosticism yet, but the seeds of Gnosticism, this sort of docetism, as we call it, uh, we can see that in the New Testament. We can see it like, for example, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, when Paul says things like, you know, you, you, were, you were freed from superstition. Why are you going back to it? Why are you worshiping angels? Why are you, um, you know, uh, going back to these sort of pagan practices? And um, while that isn't really Gnosticism yet, 
that is kind of the seeds of Gnosticism that, that grows. And in the second and then third century, um, Gnosticism grows into a, you know, a, a really full-blown religion that then separates out from Christianity and, and um, it has really real serious implications for the way um, Gnostics saw Christ and salvation that are different from what the mainstream church was teaching. With the stew analogy or the salad bar, have since we are so far removed from Platonic philosophy and the superstition surrounding the growth of the early church, are we immune from Gnostic heresy? Or is there a sense that since it was already present in the New Testament that there's something about the gospel and the Christian perspective on the universe that leaves us open to the Gnostic trajectory uh, even today? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's an important question, and and I mean I, I'll preface my answer by saying you know I think that if you were to if you were to to poll Christians uh, and just and ask them what what do you think happens when you die, uh, although they don't know how Platonist they are, they would probably give you a Platonist answer and not a Christian answer. If you ask them what do you think will happen when you die, they will say something like, "Well, my soul will leave my body, and my soul will go to heaven and live." eternally without my body. And well, that is actually a pagan philosophical answer, not a Christian answer, because the Christian answer has to do with resurrection and the resurrection of the body and the eventual reuniting of body and soul. And um, and so I think that people are very susceptible to this uh, platonic dualism now, and um, especially they're also susceptible to the Gnostic promise of um, sort of secret knowledge. And, you know, as, as a lot of people know, the word Gnostic spelled with a G, right? So the, the silent G in Gnostic is the same as our silent K in the word knowledge, because gnosis means knowledge. And the hallmark of Gnosticism is secret knowledge. What was the secret knowledge? Well, the essence of the secret is that there is a divine spark within all of us. And so the Gnostics teach that basically everyone is... God, or everyone is a God. And I think people are uh, very willing to believe that they are gods. And so that, you know, anytime they hear a version of Gnosticism uh, in contemporary culture, uh, it, it can be very attractive. Um, you know, the other thing about it is that, that uh, I don't know if you remember the, the New Age movement back in the day, but the New Age movement was a very syncretistic or salad bar approach to spirituality. And, and we, we live in a culture that's very sort of consumer oriented and um, very willing to believe that, you know, I can decide what's right for me. And so, you know, in, in that kind of mentality, what you get is an approach to religion that says, I will pick and choose what elements of all the different faiths I want to accept. I will leave behind the ones that seem uncomfortable to me and I will create um, what is basically my own religion in which I am the ultimate authority. So I'm the God of my own religion of one. And, uh, and yeah, that's Gnosticism. And it's, it's alive and well. Um, and it even finds its way into organized religion in the forms of uh, you know, any kind of mind over matter uh, religion that you might see out there like Christian science or Scientology um, or any of these kinds of things are, are really have their basis in Gnosticism. You mentioned the spark of the divine and how prevalent that is in world religions and various new religious movements. Uh, it seems that this concept is not just 
a issue for Christianity, but finds itself all throughout humanity. I mean, what you're describing as well is a core tenet of Eastern philosophies and thoughts, such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism. Right. And I mean, this is the point, right? Because Gnosticism picks and chooses from all of the different world religions. And so uh, if I wanted to, uh, you know, if I wanted to call myself spiritual but not religious, right? Well, this is exactly what I would do. I would pick and choose the things that feel good to me and say, oh, I'm a god. I like that idea. Oh, but there's, you know, responsibility for uh, care for for loving my neighbor and care for the environment or whatever. Oh, I'm th- those, you know, those are inconvenient for me. So I set those aside and I'm going to create my own religion based on, you know, whatever, uh, whatever works for me. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a syncretism of a lot of the world religions. It's, and it's created out of the pieces of things that have existed for a long time, but it kind of creates something idiosyncratic, you know, mm. Uh, to go back to the development of Gnosticism, you mentioned that a lot of the Gnostic writings that we have post-date the apostolic era by centuries. Right. And when you are trying to convince somebody of your worldview and you're grounding it in a worldview that's already established, we'll say, not well-established at this point in time for Christianity, but at least established, how do you do so out of that text? So I'm thinking about a conversation between a Gnostic and an Orthodox Christian reading 1 Corinthians 15, or John, the first chapter, where the Word comes and becomes flesh. Uh, Do you know how they would have gotten through the biblical texts to make their argument? Well, I think, you know, one thing they would do is... um probably go back to the Jewish roots of Christianity and talk about the difference between creator and creation. Um, you know, there's, there's only two categories. There's creator and there's everything else that is created. And um, the question is, where do you draw that line? And so, um, you know, a, a Judeo-Christian believer would draw that line between God and everything else. So God, and for Christians, God as Trinity— is all on the creator side of the line. Everything else, including us, is on the creation or the created side of the line. Um, a Gnostic would, uh, on the one hand, put humanity uh, more in the divine realm, but at the same time, the Gnostics had this idea that gods themselves could be created. So there's this paradox, and I think um, whether or not it would be it would be possible to convince a Gnostic out of that paradox, the fact remains that that's a very different worldview in terms of how um, how they're looking at the world and and where they're starting from in terms of uh, you know we so so God is distinct God as Creator is distinct from creation and we are not gods we are not creators um, we may be made in the image of God but that's a different thing and so. Uh, I think that's that's one way that they would talk about that. But then, you know, to talk about Jesus Christ as a mediator um, between creator and creation, uh, the uh, the early Christians would go to the issue of salvation and say, well, um, you know, there, there's a there's a sort of maxim in the early church: uh, what is not assumed is not saved. In other words, if if Christ did not assume humanity, he cannot save humanity. He can't save us if he's not one of us. Um, and so, uh, 
so in order for for him to be the savior of humanity, he has to be truly human. So that would be at least p- part of the argument they use. That's good, Jim. I'm I'm so glad you brought up this distinction between created reality and uncreated reality, where God is creator and then everything else that He has made. As we've been going through this series, uh, as you mentioned, you were with us on the episode on adoptionism, but we've been looking at these heresies from the early church, and you mentioned. Uh, in the background of the New Testament, perhaps, is a proto-Gnosticism or a, or a docetism that in Gnosticism becomes an extreme dualism that you said, which denigrates matter, flesh, the body, over and against, you know, the spirit, which is God, and therefore cannot entertain the idea of an incarnation or of those two mingling, created and uncreated reality. But it seems like here's the rub with Christianity is we can't entirely bracket out the Trinity on the side of uncreated reality after the incarnation because God has assumed humanity, the Son of God at least, through the incarnation. And so you're, you're speaking of Jesus as the mediator. And I think what we're seeing as we progress through this series with all these different heresies is that paradox, that mystery is just too much to take on for some people or it's... To, it needs to be explained in a fine enough detail that it can satisfy the the Jews and the Greeks for whom Jesus is a scandal or a stumbling block. Right. And right. orthodoxy has to hold to the mystery at the end of the day or be content to say both, that he is right. God and he is man, fully and completely. And it so it, it's just interesting that you know, I think what you you hit the nail on the head when you're boiling it down to this distinction between created reality and uncreated reality, and and uh, how that how something like the incarnation then affected those with a desire to hold on to a Greek philosophical perspective that would be you know an extreme form of Platonic dualism, say. Right, right, and I think you know the this issue of the body is extremely important because um, for the for the Christian, coming from Judaism, uh, the, the human body is created good by God. It's, it's a part of our essence. It's a part of who we are as humans. It's meant to be redeemed, not, not discarded and destroyed. For the, for the Gnostic, the human body is evil. It's a prison. It's, um, it's meant to be discarded the way a snake sheds its skin. And that leads the Gnostics to not only denigration of the body in principle, but it, it leads to um, ways of treating the human body as though, you know, the, the body is disposable or expendable or exploitable. And, you know, historically, this is just an observation, but historically Gnosticism has often led to um, a spiritualization of life that ignores the bodies of the poor, that exploits the bodies of women, etc. And so um, this this is extremely important to, to look at the different ways that the human body is treated. If we treat the body as, as something that is not essentially part of us as humans, but it's meant to be discarded when we die, that's going to lead to a different kind of lifestyle than one that treats the human body as though it's created good by a good God and meant to be redeemed. That's a great point, and I especially appreciate two things in there. The first, what you're saying is the Gnostics 
are essentially calling God a liar when he looks at his physical creation and says, this is very good when he created it. And secondly, your, your point on how it led to discounting of the poor or degradation of women, uh, that's one of the strong arguments for not including Gnostic writings into the New Testament canon. So aside right. from the fact that they are written well after, they just do not mesh with the no. teachings of Christ. I think specifically in the Gospel of Thomas, in the last verse, 114, where basically Jesus says, if you want to come or enter into the kingdom of heaven, you females must become males. And that's my blessing and gift to you. I'm going to make you a male so that you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I think about that Jesus, and then I think about the Jesus approaching the woman at the well, or the Jesus who reserved the first witness of his resurrection to be women, and there is an incompatibility that I think is irreconcilable. Yeah, that, you're absolutely right. And it's it's frustrating for me as a scholar to hear um, other scholars even, let alone you know the producers of shows on History Channel, um, treat the Gnostic Gospels as though they're somehow as reliable or even more reliable than the canonical Gospels, and treat them as though there's some sort of, um, you know, uh, better in terms of being egalitarian, you know, they they deny the hierarchy or whatever the reasoning is, because at the end of the day, those Gnostic Gospels are misogynist and they're anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're just not, they're not the Jesus that, that we see um, in the canonical Gospels in the letters of the New Testament in the early church. The other thing that's worth mentioning, too, is that, you know, you, you mentioned how uh, the Gnostics call God a liar when he says, uh, looks at his creation and says, this is good. Uh, but many Gnostics would actually say, well, that God in the Old Testament who created the world, he may have thought it was good, but he's not the real God. He's just some demigod who was ignorant or evil. We know about a different, higher, better God. And so, you know, the other thing that the Gnostics tended to do was completely disconnect Jesus from Judaism, the Old Testament, and the God of the Old Testament, and claim that Jesus was preaching about a different God, um, and and sort of creating. Um, well, of course, there it's it's assuming a pantheon of gods. So it's so Gnosticism is perfectly comfortable with many gods. They they didn't really necessarily feel uh, they needed to stick to just one God, but um, but ultimately what they were saying is that this God that we've uh, known about all this time in the Old Testament and throughout uh, Judaism, that that's not the real God, that's an evil God, and he's ultimately the enemy of humanity, and everything he's, he created is bad. And so that's, you know, another big difference between, you know, what the mainstream church was teaching and what the Gnostics were teaching. I want to ask you if you think Islam is Gnostic. Um, you know, I would have to say, and I'm no expert on Islam, but I would have to say that Islam probably is closer to the adoptionists than it is to the Gnostics. Okay. Uh, but, you, you mentioned there's this revulsion to the mingling of uncreated and created reality. You mentioned misogyny. Mm -hmm. You mentioned anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just made me think of... Uh, yeah. Islam in some of its more radical forms, obviously, uh, right? I think, less yeah. moderate forms doesn't contain some Gnostic uh, tendencies or elements. I think maybe the connection point would be that 
God and Islam is Tawheed. He's so completely separate, right? But there, what you're describing, Jim, is there's almost like intermediary beings that are given the task to create so that mm. God doesn't have to get his hands in the mud and right. he can remain outside of the physical. And that that's where Islam and I think Gnosticism would, would part ways. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't grant that. Yeah, it's an interesting point. But I think, and again, I'm, I'm not saying this as someone who claims to be an expert on Islam at yeah. all, but I think it is fair to say that Islam itself is a syncretism in the sense that it combines elements from Judaism, Christianity, and other places uh, into, uh, you know, into that religion. Yeah, that that's good. That's kind of what I'm, that was where my leading question was was yeah. was <laughs> directing you. I want to return to the divine spark in man and woman. Well, maybe just man, um, based on the end of the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, if if that's all right for a second. Yeah. Uh, what I'm another thing I think that is worth mentioning is how heresy is its truth at a glance, or it takes things that are true and it skews them. Some to a greatly exaggerated extent, and some slightly. And when it comes to this idea of the divine spark in humanity, we have a high view of man in the in Christian theology from, you know, being given the image of God, from being the crown of creation, the thing right. of, of which God declared is very good as opposed to just the good that was given to uh, everything made prior. There's the... You know, the Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, a, a, a humility, and yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, or Elohim is the, is the word in Hebrew, also the word for God, a little lower than God or a God. And then you have orthodox doctrine of theosis or divinization where Peter says we are going to be partakers of the divine nature, whatever that means. And so this sense of the Son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God, this this destiny to be conformed to the image of Christ, you know, the true image of God that Adam failed to in the end become, that then Jesus came and showed us what that was, and now the Spirit is fashioning us to be that. So maybe could you say something about that and relate that to the divine spark idea and how that might be just a Christian anthropology that's askew or... Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, the thing about that is that even with even with the idea of theosis, uh, even the, as we approach God-likeness, and as we uh, hopefully through sanctification increasingly realize the potential, uh, our potential is made in the image of God, we never uh, are said to become gods ourselves or to um, sort of reach that, uh, that point of divinity. And so you know, there's always that line of, you know, between creator and creation, yeah. between us and divinity, is so that the difference between us and God is not simply a difference in degree, but a difference in kind. Um, whereas with Gnosticism, it's a difference of degree, uh, which is not unlike, you know, some ancient religions like Egyptian religion that saw the highest levels of the human hierarchy as, you know, part of the divine hierarchy. And so, you know, a pharaoh is a is a lower god, and you know that the 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 hierarchy is sort of on a grade all the way from the highest gods down to the lowest human. But um, but yeah, I mean the 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 other thing that's sort of I don't know if it's ironic or paradoxical, but um, you know, in the Gnostic system, 
if if we all are gods, then uh, you know, then in in a certain sense, Jesus is one of us because he's a god, and so are we. Um, and and this is kind of the the interesting paradox about the, the heresies on both extremes because with adoptionism. Uh, Jesus is not unique among humanity because he's a mere human and so are we. But then in Gnosticism, Jesus is not really all that unique either because he's a God and so are we. And so it's only in, in orthodoxy that Jesus is one of us and yet also unique among us. Um, we have the image of God, um, but not a divine spark in the sense that we are divine. I've, if we are thinking from a pastoral perspective or maybe even the apologetic perspective, we've mentioned the divine, the divine spark. We've mentioned the dualistic approach uh, to the world, uh, going so far as to even giving us an incorrect perspective of what the afterlife is all about. What, what would be some other red flags that a person is veering off into toward a, a more Gnostic approach? Well, I think, you know, a, a relativistic approach to spirituality um, is is always going to eventually, if taken far enough, is always going to lead to, um, you know, sort of me being um, my own God and a religion of one. In other words, when you sense that people are giving themselves the authority to decide what is right and wrong and to decide what should be part of their you know, faith experience and what should not. Um, I mean, ultimately, that is the sin of Adam and Eve, isn't it? I mean, God says, this is right and this is wrong. And Adam and Eve says, thank you, God, but we're going to do the opposite, you know. Um, so we are, you know, that is that is one of the great temptations of human nature is to make ourselves our own highest authority. And you see that a lot in not, you know, not only in our culture, but in the church as well, where People will say, "Well, I, you know, I know the church teaches that, but yeah, I don't, I don't need that, or I don't believe that, or we, you know, whatever the scenario is, um, it's ultimately a form of narcissism or hedonism or some sort of self-centeredness that allows people to put themselves in that position of highest authority." That definitely sounds like uh, that sounds like our age. I mean, that sounds yeah. like the cultural environment we're in. Yeah, and I mean, you know. Um, the, the consumerism of our culture only fuels that and enables it even more um, because sort of everyone has been conditioned to believe that they deserve to have a, you know, Burger King kind of life, you know, have it your way. And if not, something's wrong. So what? What's the matter with Gnosticism anyway? This heresy not only represents one of the earliest attempts at undermining the gospel, but it also encapsulates what it means when Christians syncretize or mix their religious worldviews with another religion. The result was a worldview that rejected the physical world as evil and the spiritual world as good, despite the fact that God physically created everything and called it very good and sent his son to incarnate, that is, take on flesh, a physical body, so that all both body and soul, could be redeemed. Not only this, but the so-called Gospels of the Gnostics, written sometimes centuries after the New Testament, are esoteric, misogynistic, and certainly do not reflect the true Jesus as found in the Bible. And yet, 
we still find ourselves, centuries later, at risk of Gnostic thinking, when we believe things like our body leaving our soul to be with the Lord forever when we die. We have in Christ's resurrection, who was, as Paul says, the firstborn of the resurrection, of our future rising from the ground to both be bodily and physically with the Lord Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Well, as this series now draws to a close, we hope you enjoyed it and that it was helpful to you for thinking through issues of the faith in contrast to ideas that, at certain points in the history of the church, threatened to derail the gospel. Looking ahead, we'll be jumping into a mini-series on the top misunderstood Bible verses, and we're looking for your input. Let us know what you think are the most misunderstood or misused verses of the Bible by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com, messaging us on Facebook, just search for the So What Podcast, or by hitting us up on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast. After that, given that 2017 is the 500th anniversary of an event that sparked the Protestant Reformation, we thought it would be timely to explore that event. We'll have plenty of top-notch guests and, of course, good conversation with the crew orbiting the people, events, theology, and implications of the Protestant Reformation to ask the obvious question, so what?